Welcome, happy listeners, to the final episode of Play on Words. Today's program features a conundrum in the form of a man and his valet, in Jeeves and Wooster's The Aunt and the Sluggard, and here locals come up with a bit of spoken word in Make Up a Poem Right Now. And, dear listeners, this is the last time I will be locked in a room with Gerald and Marjorie! In the days past, they sat across from the booth making rude hand gestures at me. I thought I would have a nervous breakdown, but seeing their protruding fingers right now brings nothing to me but a calm, meditative state. Marjorie, I think we broke the host. I kept telling you to go easy on the poor... Oh, whatever the name is. But you always take things too far. Uh, d- why? Isn't this host person just an imaginary friend of yours? Gerald, they're sitting right over there. You're not wearing your glasses or your hearing aids today, are you? That keeps me young, Marjorie. I keep telling you to try it out. I don't need hearing aids. (laughs) Prove it. What? A totally meditative state. I can get through this. I can get through this. Now we excitedly turn to the heart of downtown where our poor dilapidated correspondent has been patiently waiting for his couple seconds of airtime. Standing here with mystery downtown gum stuck to my shoe and my reporter hat being used as an ashtray by pedestrians, I'd do it all for you. Today I thought of doing it maybe a little bit differently. And since the last person I approached started to hit me with their umbrella calling out, Help! Help! Police! I thought I would be my own guest on Make Up a Poem right now. Strolling along the downtown streets, breathing in the car fumes and seeing the unwashed masses, feeling acid rain eat through my skin, it put me in a poetic mood. So my name is... And here is my poem. Bright lights, small city, briny sea air and the cherry blossom petal sidewalk. The streets are made of poetry that no one can speak. Bright lights, shy neighbors. Flash a smile my way, but hurry off, unless coaxed with cake or five dollars. Bright lights, big dreamin'. Microphone in hand, I will decipher the garden secrets through the eyes of others. That was pretty good. That was fun, too. That was lots of fun. Why do so few people want to talk to me? Poetry's amazing. It makes me feel so free. You know what? I think I should do this more often. I think I want to be a poet. That means no more waiting around to hear poetry from others. I'm going to make my own way spinning poetry from my own brain. Back to you, host. I'm done with radio. I'm going to be a poet. And now, bountiful listeners, we have another adventure for you following our dear friends Jeeves and Wooster. I wonder what those scoundrels are up to this week. Gerald, I always have had such fun here, but today is not fun. I was thinking that. I think it's because of all that exuberant happiness going on over there. In my day, happiness was kept private, not shared all over the place. Young people have no decorum anymore. They think they can show their feelings on their face. It's barbaric. Ah, what a sheer delight that you've tuned in. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Bertie Wooster, and you, well, whoever you may be, You're just in time for a recounting of the fond memories I have of my man, my valiant valet, Jeeves. Ah, yes, Jeeves and I saw many in this adventure. Yes, like the one time, for example, when my good friend Rockmiteller Todd came to my door in need of a favor. Now that it's all over, I may as well admit that there was a time during the rather funny affair of Rockmiteller Todd when I thought that Jeeves was going to let me down. The man had the appearance of being baffled. Jeeves is my man, you know. 
Officially, he pulls in his weekly wages for pressing my clothes and all that sort of thing. But actually, he's more like what the poet Johnny called some bird of his acquaintance who was apt to rally round him in times of need. A guide, don't you know? Philosopher, if I remember rightly. And, I rather fancy, friend. I rely on him at every turn. So naturally, when Rocky Todd told me about his aunt, I didn't hesitate. Jeeves was in on the thing from the start. The affair of Rocky Todd broke loose early one morning of spring. I was in bed, restoring the good old tissues with about nine hours of the dreamless, when the door flew open and somebody prodded me in the lower ribs and began to shake the bedclothes. Bertie! Bertie, wake up! Uh, who goes there? After blinking a bit and generally pulling myself together, I located Rocky, and my first impression was that it was some horrid dream. Rocky, you see, lived in the countryside, far away from my flat in the city. And not only that, but he had told me himself more than once that he never got up before twelve, and seldom earlier than one. Constitutionally the laziest young devil in America, he had hit on a walk in life which enabled him to go the limit in that direction. He was a poet. At least, he wrote poems when he did anything. But most of his time, as far as I could make out, he spent in a sort of trance. He told me once he could sit on a fence watching a worm and wondering what on earth it was up to for hours at a stretch. He had his scheme of life worked out to a fine point. About once a month he would take three days writing a few poems. The other 329 days of the year he rested. I didn't know there was enough money in poetry to support a chappie, even in the way in which Rocky lived, but it seems that if you stick to exhortations to young men to lead the strenuous life and don't shove in any rhymes, American editors fight for the stuff. Rocky showed me one of his things once. It began, B, B, the past is dead. Tomorrow is not born, B today. Today, be with every nerve, with every muscle, with every drop of your red blood, B. It was printed opposite the frontispiece of a magazine with a sort of scroll around it, and a picture in the middle of a fairly nude chappy with bulging muscles, giving the rising sun the glad eye. Rocky said that they gave him a hundred dollars for it, and he stayed in bed till four in the afternoon for over a month. As regarded the future, he was pretty solid, owing to the fact that he had a moneyed aunt tucked away somewhere in his lineage. And, as he had been named Rock Metellar after her, and was her only nephew, his position was pretty sound. He told me that when he did come into the money, he meant to do no work at all, except perhaps an occasional poem, recommending the young man with life opening out before him with all its splendid possibilities to light a pipe and shove his feet upon the mantelpiece. And this was the man who was prodding me in the ribs in the gray dawn. Read this, Bertie. Wake up and read this. I can't read before I've had my morning tea. I groped for the bell. Jeeves came in looking as fresh as a dewy violet. It's a mystery to me how he does it. Sir? Tea, Jeeves. Very good, sir. Bertie! What is it? What on earth's the matter? Read it. I can't. I haven't had my tea. Well, listen then. Who's it from? My aunt. At this point, I fell asleep again. I woke to hear him saying, So what on earth am I going to do? Jeeves trickled in with the tray, like some silent stream meandering over its mossy bed, and I saw daylight. Read it again, Rocky Old Top. I want Jeeves to hear it. Mr. Todd's aunt has written him a rather rummy letter, Jeeves, and we want your advice. Very good, sir. All right, then. <clears throat> My dear Rockmeteller, I have been thinking things over for a long while, and I have come to the conclusion that I have been very thoughtless to wait so long before doing what I have made up my mind to do now. What do you make of that, Jeeves? It seems a little obscure at present, sir, but no doubt it becomes clear at a later point in the communication. It becomes as clear as mud. Proceed, old scout. You know how all my life I have longed to visit New York and see for myself the wonderful gay life of which I have read so much. I fear that now it will be impossible for me to fulfill my dream. I am old and worn out. I seem to have no strength left in me. 
Sad, Jeeves, eh? Extremely sad. Sad nothing. It's sheer laziness. I went to see her last Christmas and she was bursting with health. Her doctor told me himself that there's nothing wrong with her whatsoever, but she will insist that she's a hopeless invalid, so he has to agree with her. She's got a fixed idea that the trip to New York would kill her. So, though it's been her ambition all her life to come here, she stays where she is. Rather like the chappy whose heart was in the highlands, a chasing of the deer, Jeeves. The cases are, in some respects, parallel, sir. Carry on, Rocky, dear boy. So I have decided that, if I cannot enjoy all the marvels of the city myself, I can at least enjoy them through you. I suddenly thought of this yesterday, after reading a beautiful poem in the Sunday paper about a young man who had longed all his life for a certain thing and won it in the end only when he was too old to enjoy it. It was very sad, and it touched me. As you know, you will have my money when I'm gone. But until now, I have never been able to see my way to giving you an allowance. I have now decided to do so on one condition. I've written to a firm of lawyers in New York, giving them instructions to pay you quite a substantial sum each month. My one condition is that you live in New York and enjoy yourself as I have always wished to do. I want you to be my representative, to spend this money for me as I should do myself. I want you to plunge into the gay, prismatic life of the city. I want you to be the life and soul of brilliant supper parties. Above all, I want you, indeed I insist on this, to write me letters at least once a week, giving me a full description of all you are doing and all that is going on in the city so that I may enjoy at second hand what my wretched health prevents my enjoying for myself. Remember that I shall expect full details and that no detail is too trivial to interest. Your affectionate aunt, Isabel Rockmateller. What about it? What do you mean, what about it? Well, what on earth am I going to do? Aren't you excited? Excited? Of course not. If I were in your place, I should be frightfully braced. I consider this pretty soft for you. Pretty soft? To have to come and live in the city? To have to leave my little cottage and take a stuffy, smelly, overheated hole of an apartment in this heaven-forsaken, festering wasteland? To have to mix night after night with a mob who think that life is a sort of St. Vitesse's dance and imagine that they're having a good time because they're making enough noise for six and drinking too much for ten? I loathe the city, Bertie. I wouldn't come near the place if I hadn't got to go see the editors occasionally. There's a blight to it. It's got moral delirium tremens. It's the limit. The very thought of staying more than a day in it makes me sick. And you call this thing pretty soft for me? It would kill me to have to live in the city. To have to share the air with six million people. To have to wear stiff collars and decent clothes all the time to- Oh, good lord! I suppose I should have to dress for dinner in the evenings. What a ghastly notion. My dear chap, you sound like that reformer Jimmy Mundy. I might have to say I agree with old Jimmy Mundy. Do you dress for dinner every night, Bertie? Jeeves, how many suits of evening clothes have I? We have three suits full of evening dress, sir. Two dinner jackets. Three. For practical purposes, two only, sir. If you remember, we cannot wear the third. We have also seven white waistcoats. And shirts? Four dozen, sir. And white ties? The first two shallow shelves in our chest of drawers are completely filled with our white ties, sir. You see, Rocky? How horrible. I won't do it. I can't do it. I'll be hanged if I'll do it. How on earth can I dress up like that? Do you realize that most days I don't get out of my pajamas till five in the afternoon, and then I just put on an old sweater? I saw Jeeves wince. Poor chap. This sort of revelation shocked his finest feelings. Then what are you going to do about it? That's what I want to know. You might write and explain to your aunt. I might, if I wanted her to get round to her lawyers in two rapid leaps and cut me out of her will. I see your point. What do you suggest, Jeeves? <clears throat> the crux of the matter would appear to be, sir, that Mr. Todd is obliged by the conditions under which the money is delivered into his possession to write Miss Rockmatella long and detailed letters relating to his movements. And the only method by which this can be accomplished, if Miss Todd adheres to the expressed intention of remaining in the country, is for Mr. Todd to induce some second party to gather the actual experiences which Miss Rockmatella wishes reported to her, and to convey these to him in the shape of a careful report, on which it would be possible for him, with the aid of his imagination, to base the suggested correspondence. I... I don't understand. Could you put it a little clearer, Bertie? I thought at the start it was going to make sense but it's kind of flickered. What's the idea? My dear old man, perfectly simple. I knew we could stand on Jeeves. 
All you've got to do is get somebody to go around the town for you and take a few notes, and then you work the notes up into a letter. That's it, isn't it, Chiefs? Precisely, sir. But who would do it? You'd have to be a pretty smart sort of man. A man who would notice things. Jeeves! Let Jeeves do it! But would he? You would do it, wouldn't you, Jeeves? For the first time in our long connection, I observed Jeeves almost smile. The corner of his mouth curved quite a quarter of an inch, and for a moment, his eyes ceased to look like a meditative fish's. I should be delighted to oblige, sir. As a matter of fact, I have already visited some of New York's places of interest on my evening out. And it would be most enjoyable to make a practice of the pursuit. Fine. I know exactly what your aunt wants to hear about, Rocky. She wants an earful of cabaret stuff. The place you ought to go to first, Jeeves, is the Regalheimer's. It's on 42nd Street. Anybody will show you the way. Pardon me, sir. People are no longer going to Regalheimer's. The place at the moment is Frolics on the roof. You see? Leave it to Jeeves. He knows. Very good, sir. It isn't often that you find an entire group of your fellow humans happy in this world, but our little circle was certainly an example of the fact that it can be done. We were all full of beans. Everything went absolutely right from the start. Jeeves was happy, partly because he loves to exercise his giant brain, and partly because he was having a corking time among the bright lights. I saw him one night at the midnight revels. He was sitting at a table on the edge of the dancing floor, doing himself remarkably well with a fat cigar and a bottle of the best. I'd never imagined he could look so nearly human. His face wore an expression of austere benevolence, and he was making notes in a small book. As for the rest of us, I was feeling pretty good, because I was so fond of old Rocky and glad to be able to do him a good turn. Rocky was perfectly contented, because he was still able to sit on fences in his pajamas and watch worms. And as for the ant, she seemed tickled to death. She was getting Broadway at a pretty long range, but it seemed to be hitting her just right. I read one of her letters to Rocky, and it was full of life. But then Rocky's letters, based on Jeeves' notes, were enough to buck anybody up. It was strange when you came to think of it. There was I, loving the life, while the mere mention of it gave Rocky a tired feeling. Yet, here is a letter I wrote to a pal of mine in London. Dear Freddy, well, here I am in the big city. It's not a bad place. I'm not having a bad time. Everything's pretty alright. The cabarets aren't bad. Don't know when I shall be back. How's everybody? Cheerio! Yours, Bertie. P.S. Seen old Ted lately? Not that I cared about old Ted, but if I hadn't dragged him in, I couldn't have got the confounded thing onto the second page. Now, here's old Rocky on exactly the same subject. Dearest Aunt Isabel, how can I ever thank you enough for giving me the opportunity to live in this astounding city. The surroundings seem more wonderful every day. Fifth Avenue is at its best, of course, just now. The dresses are magnificent. Wads of stuff about the dresses. I didn't know Jeeves was such an authority. I was out with some of the crowd at the Midnight Revels the other night. We took in a show first. After a little dinner at a new place on 43rd Street, we were quite a gay party. Georgie Cohan looked in about midnight and got off a good one about Willie Collier. Fred Stone could only stay a minute, but Doug Fairbanks did all sorts of stunts and made us roar. Diamond Jim Brandy was there as usual. And so on and so forth. Yards of it. I suppose it's the artistic temperament or something. What I mean is, it's easier for a chappie who's used to writing poems and that sort of tosh to put a bit of punch into a letter than it is for a chappie like me. Anyway, there's no doubt that Rocky's correspondence was hot stuff. I called Jeeves in and congratulated him. Jeeves, you're a wonder. Thank you, sir. How you notice everything at these places beats me. I couldn't tell you a thing about them, except that I've had a good time. It's just a knack, sir. Well, Mr. Todd's letters ought to brace Miss Rockmateller all right, eh? Undoubtedly, sir. And by Jove, they did. They certainly did, by George. What I mean to say is, I was sitting in the apartment one afternoon, about a month after the thing had started, just resting the old beam when the door opened and the voice of Jeeves burst the silence like a bomb. May I present? <laughs> it wasn't that he spoke loud. He has one of those soft, soothing voices that slide through the atmosphere like the note of a far-off sheep. It was what he said made me leap like a young gazelle. Miss Rockmatella. Rocky? Oh, Rocky! The situation floored me. I'm not denying it. 
Hamlet must have felt much as I did when his father's ghost bobbed up in the fairway. I'd come to look on Rocky's aunt as such a permanency at her own home that it didn't seem possible that she could really be here in the city. I stared at her. Then I looked at Jeeves. He was standing there in an attitude of dignified detachment, the chump, when if ever he should have been rallying round the young master, it was now. Rocky's aunt looked less like an invalid than anyone I've ever seen, except my Aunt Agatha. She had a good deal of Aunt Agatha about her, as a matter of fact. She looked as if she might be deucedly dangerous if put upon, and something seemed to tell me that she would certainly regard herself as put upon if she ever found out the game which poor old Rocky had been pulling on her. Good afternoon. How do you do? Are you Mr. Cohan? Uh, no. Mr. Fredstone? Certainly not. As a matter of fact, my name's Wooster. Bertie Wooster. Oh, well then. Isn't Rockmatell at home? Where is he? Uh, he's, uh... <clears throat> if you remember, sir, Mr. Todd went out in the automobile with a party in the afternoon. So he did, Jeeves, so he did. Did he say when he would be back? He gave me to understand, sir, that he would be somewhat late in returning. Excuse me. Mr. Wooster, if you'd be so kind as to offer me a chair... Oh, of course. How rude of me. Please, sit. You seem very much at home here, young man. Are you a friend of Rockmateller's? Oh, yes, rather. Well, you need to be. The way you treat as flat as your own. I give you my word, this quite unforeseen slam simply robbed me of the power of speech. I'd been looking on myself in the light of the dashing host, and suddenly to be treated as an intruder jarred me. It wasn't, mark you, as if she had spoken in a way to suggest that she considered my presence in the place as an ordinary social call. She obviously looked on me as a cross between a burglar and the plumber's man come to fix a leak in the bathroom. It hurt her, my being there. At this juncture, with the conversation showing every sign of being about to die in awful agonies, an idea came to me. Tea. The good old standby. Would you care for a cup of tea? Tea? Yes. Nothing like a cup after a journey. Fucks you up. Puts a bit of zip into you. What I mean is, restores you and so on, don't you know? I'll go and tell Jeeves. Excuse me. I tottered down the passage to Jeeves's lair. The man was reading the evening paper, as if he hadn't a care in the world. Jeeves, we want some tea. Very good, sir. I say, Jeeves, this is a bit thick, eh? She's got the idea this place belongs to Mr. Todd. What on earth put that into her head? No doubt because of Mr. Todd's letters, sir. It was my suggestion, sir, if you remember, that they should be addressed from this apartment in order that Mr. Todd should appear to possess a good central residence in the city. Well, it's bally awkward, you know, Jeeves. She looks on me as an intruder. By Jove, I suppose she thinks I'm someone who hangs about here touching Mr. Todd for free meals and borrowing his shirts. Yes, sir. It's pretty rotten, you know. Most disturbing, sir. And there's another thing. What are we to do about Mr. Todd? We've got to get him up here as soon as ever we can. When you have brought the tea, you had better go out and send him a telegram, telling him to come up by the next train. I have already done so, sir. I took the liberty of writing the message and dispatching it by the lift attendant. By Jove, you think of everything, Jeeves. Thank you, sir. A little buttered toast with the tea? Just so, sir. Thank you. I went back to the sitting room. She hadn't moved an inch. She was still bolt upright on the edge of her chair, gripping her umbrella like a hammer thrower. She gave me a dirty look as I came in. There was no doubt about it. For some reason she had taken a dislike to me. I suppose because I wasn't George M. Cohen. It was a bit hard on a chap. The tea will be here shortly. Well, this is a surprise. What is a surprise? You're coming here, don't you know, and so on. Why is it surprising that I should visit my only nephew? Oh, rather, of course, certainly. What I mean is... Tea is served. Ah, yes, lovely. Thank you, Jeeves. Madam Rockmateller? Do you mean to say, young man, that you expect me to drink this stuff? Rather. Bucks you up, you know. What do you mean by the expression, bucks you up? Well, makes you full of beans, you know. Makes you fizz. I don't understand a word you say. Um, no matter. Are you comfortable at your hotel? At which hotel? The hotel you're staying at. I'm not staying at a hotel. Staying with friends, then? I'm naturally staying with my nephew. What? Here? Oh, certainly. Where else should I go? Oh, dear. 
Will you kindly tell my nephew's manservant to prepare my room? I wish to lie down. Your nephew's manservant? The man you call Jeeves. If Rock Metella has gone for an automobile ride, there's no need for you to wait for him. He will naturally wish to be alone with me when he returns. I, uh, certainly. One moment, Madam Rock Metteller. I found myself tottering out of the room. The thing was too much for me. I crept into Jeeves's den. Jeeves! Sir? Mix me a gin and tonic, Jeeves. I feel weak. Very good, sir. This is getting thicker every minute, Jeeves. Sir? She thinks you're Mr. Todd's man. She thinks the whole place is his and everything in it. I don't see what you're to do except stay on and keep it up. We can't say anything or she'll get on to the whole thing. And I don't want to let Mr. Todd down. By the way, Jeeves, she wants you to prepare her bed. It, it's hardly my place, sir. I know, I know. But do it as a personal favor to me. If you come to that, it's hardly my place to be flung out of the flat like this and have to go to a hotel. Is it your intention to go to a hotel, sir? What will you do for clothes? Good lord, I haven't thought of that. Can you put a few things in a bag when she isn't looking and sneak them down to me at the St. Norea? I will endeavor to do so, sir. Well, I don't think there's anything more, is there? Tell Mr. Todd where I am when he gets here. Very good, sir. I looked around the place. The moment of parting had come. I felt sad. The whole thing reminded me of one of those melodramas where they drive chappies out of the old homestead into the snow. Goodbye, Jeeves. Goodbye, sir. You know, I rather think I agree with those poet and philosopher Johnnies who insist that a fellow ought to be devilish pleased if he has a bit of trouble. All that stuff about being refined by suffering, you know. Suffering does give a chap a sort of broader and more sympathetic outlook. It helps you to understand other people's misfortunes if you've been through the same thing yourself. (sighs) As I stood in my lonely bedroom at the hotel, trying to tie my white tie myself, it struck me for the first time that there must be whole squads of chappies in the world who had to get along without a man to look after them. I'd always thought of Jeeves as a kind of natural phenomenon, but by Jove, of course, when you come to think of it, there must be quite a lot of fellows who have to press their own clothes themselves and haven't got anybody to bring them tea in the morning and so on. It was rather a solemn thought, don't you know? I mean to say, ever since then I've been able to appreciate the frightful privations the poor have to stick. I got dressed somehow. Jeeves hadn't forgotten a thing in his packing. Everything was there, down to the final stud, and I'm not sure this didn't make me feel worse. It kind of deepens the pathos. It was like what somebody or other wrote about the touch of a vanished hand. I had a bit of dinner somewhere and went out to a show of some kind, but nothing seemed to make any difference. I simply hadn't the heart to go on to supper anywhere. I just sucked down a whiskey and soda in the hotel smoking room and went straight up to bed. I don't know when I felt so rotten. Somehow I found myself moving about the room softly, as if there had been a death in the family. If I had anybody to talk to, I should have talked in a whisper. In fact, when the telephone bell rang, I answered in such a sad, hushed voice that the fellow at the other end of the wire said hello "Hello," five times, thinking he hadn't got me. Hello? It was Rocky. The poor old scout was deeply agitated. Bertie? Is that you, Bertie? Oh, gosh, I'm having a time. Where are you speaking from? The Midnight Revels. We've been here an hour, and I think we're a fixture for the night. I've told Aunt Isabel I've gone out to call up a friend to join us. She's glued to a chair with This Is The Life written all over her, taking it in through the pores. She loves it, and I'm nearly crazy. Tell me all, old top. A little more of this, and I shall sneak quietly off to the river and end it all. Do you mean to say you go through this sort of thing every night, Bertie, and enjoy it? It's simply infernal. I was just snatching a wink of sleep behind the bill of fare just now when about a million yelling girls swooped down with toy balloons. There are two orchestras here, each trying to see if they can't play louder than the other. I'm a mental and physical wreck. When your telegram arrived, I was just lying down for a quiet pipe. With a sense of absolute peace stealing over me, I had to get dressed and sprint two miles to catch the train. It nearly gave me heart failure, and on top of that, I almost got brain fever inventing lies to tell Aunt Isabel. 
And then I had to cram myself into one of those confounded evening clothes of yours. You fiend! You'll ruin them! I hope so. I should like to get back at them somehow. They've given me a bad enough time. They're about three sizes too small, and something's apt to give at any moment. I wish to goodness it would, and give me a chance to breathe. I haven't breathed since half past seven. Thank heaven Jeeves managed to get out and buy me a collar that fitted, or else I should be a strangled corpse by now. It was touch and go till the stud broke. Bertie, this is pure Hades. Aunt Isabel keeps on urging me to dance. How on earth can I dance when I don't know a soul to dance with? And how the deuce could I, even if I knew every girl in the place? It's taking big chances even to move in these trousers. I had to tell her I've hurt my ankle. She keeps asking me when Cohen and Stone are going to turn up, and it's simply a question of time before she discovers that Stone is sitting two tables away. Something's got to be done, Bertie. You've got to think up some way of getting me out of this mess. It was you who got me into it. Me? What do you mean? Well, Jeeves, then. It's all the same. It was you who suggested leaving it to Jeeves. It was those letters I wrote from his notes that did the mischief. I made them too good. My aunt's just been telling me about it. She says she has resigned herself to ending her life where she was. And then my letters began to arrive describing the joys of the city, and they stimulated her to such an extent that she pulled herself together and made the trip. She seems to think she's had some miraculous kind of faith cure. I tell you, I can't stand it, Bertie. It's gotta end. Can't Jeeves think of anything? No, he just hangs around saying, Most disturbing, sir. A fat lot of help, that is. Well, old lad, after all, it's far worse for me than it is for you. You've got a comfortable home in Jeeves. And you're saving a lot of money. Saving money? What do you mean, saving money? Why, the allowance your aunt was giving you. I suppose she's paying all the expenses now, isn't she? Certainly she is. But she stopped the allowance. She wrote the lawyers tonight. She says that, now that she's in the city, there is no necessity for it to go on, as we shall always be together, and it's simpler for her to look after that end of it. I tell you, Bertie, I've examined the darned cloud with a microscope, and if it's got a silver lining, it's... Some little dissembler. But Rocky, old top, it's too bally awful. You've no notion of what I'm going through in this beastly hotel without Jeeves. I must get back to the flat. Don't come near the flat. But it's my own flat. I can't help that Aunt Isabel doesn't like you. She asked me what you did for a living, and when I told her you didn't do anything, she said she thought as much, and that you were a typical specimen of a useless and decaying aristocracy. So if you think you have made a hit, forget it. Now I must be going back, or she'll coming out here after me. Goodbye. Oh, what a conundrum. I'm not even allowed back to my own flat. How truly dreadful. Perhaps I should rest. Yes, a bit of shut-eyes should life in my spirits. Good morning, sir. What? Who is that? <sighs> Jeeves! Oh, jeez, my man! I could rightly kiss you! If I may request that you refrain, sir. Uh, of course. It's lovely to see you. I have brought you a few more of your personal belongings, sir. Did you have any trouble sneaking them away? It was not easy, sir. I had to watch my chance. Miss Rockmatella is a remarkably alert lady. You know, Jeeves, say what you like. This is a bit thick, isn't it? The situation is certainly one that has never before come under my notice, sir. I have brought the heather mixture suit, as climactic conditions are congenial. Tomorrow, if not prevented, I will endeavor to add the brown lounge, with the faint green twill. It can't go on, this sort of thing, Jeeves. We must hope for the best, sir. Can't you think of anything to do? I have been giving the matter considerable thought, sir, but so far without success. I am placing three silk shirts, the dove-colored, the light blue, and... The mauve in the first long drawer, sir. You don't mean to say that you can't think of anything, Jeeves. For the moment, sir, no. You will find a dozen handkerchiefs and the tan socks in the upper drawer on the left. A curious lady, Miss Rockmatella, sir. In many ways, sir, Miss Rockmatella reminds me of an aunt of mine. Their temperaments are much alike. My aunt has the same taste for the pleasures of a great city. It is a passion with her to ride in handsome cabs, sir. Whenever the family take their eyes off her, she escapes from the house and spends the day riding about in cabs. On several occasions, she has broken into the children's savings bank to secure the means to enable her to gratify this desire. I love to have these little chats with you about your female relatives, Jeeves, but I don't see what all this has got to do with my trouble. I beg your pardon, sir. I am leaving a small assortment of neckties on the mantelpiece, sir. 
for you to select according to your preference. I should recommend the blue with the red domino pattern. Excuse me, sir. I must return to the flat immediately. I've often heard that chappies, after some great shock or loss, have a habit, after they've been on the floor for a while, wondering what hit them, of picking themselves up and piecing themselves together and sort of taking a whirl at beginning a new life. Time, the great healer, and nature adjusting itself, and so on and so forth. There's a lot in it. I know, because in my own case, after a day or two of what you might call prostration, I began to recover. The frightful loss of Jeeves made any thought of pleasure more or less a mockery, but at least I found that I was able to have a dash at enjoying life again. What I mean is, I was braced up to the extent of going round the cabarets once more so as to try to forget, if only for the moment. The city is a small place when it comes to the part of it that wakes up just as the rest is going to bed, and it wasn't long before my tracks began to cross old Rockies. Why, hello, old top. Bertie, pleasure to see you. I saw him once at Peel's, and again at Frolics on the roof. There wasn't anybody with him either time except the aunt, and though she was trying to look as if he had struck the ideal life, it wasn't difficult for me, knowing the circumstances, that beneath the mask, the poor chap was suffering. My heart bled for the fellow. At least, what there was of it that wasn't bleeding for myself bled for him. He had the air of one who was about to crack under the strain. And how are you, madame? Well, I am here in the city, aren't I? How do you think I must be doing? It seemed to me that the aunt was looking slightly upset also. I took it that she was beginning to wonder when the celebrities were going to surge round and what had suddenly become of all of those wild, careless spirits Rocky used to mix with in his letters. I didn't blame her. I had only read a couple of his letters, but they certainly gave the impression that poor old Rocky was by way of being the hub of the city nightlife, and that if by any chance he failed to show up at a cabaret, the management said, What's the use? Put up the shutters. The next two nights I didn't come across them, but the night after that I was sitting by myself at the Maison Pierre when somebody tapped me on the shoulder blade and I found Rocky standing beside me with a sort of mixed expression of wistfulness and apoplexy on his face. Bertie, how do you do? Well, well, well. What a pleasant surprise. Good to see you, Rocky. How the chappie had contrived to wear my evening clothes so many times without disaster was a mystery to me. He confided later that early in the proceedings he had slit the waistcoat up the back and that that had helped a bit. For a moment I had the idea that he managed to get away from his aunt for the evening, but looking past him I saw that she was in again. She was at a table over by the wall looking at me as if I were something the management ought to be complained to about. Bertie, old scout, we've always been pals, haven't we? I mean, you know I'd do a good turn if you asked me. My dear old lad, you've moved me. Of course I would. Then for heaven's sake, come over and sit at our table for the rest of the evening. My dear chap, you know I'd do anything in reason, but... You must come, Bertie. You've got to. Something's got to be done to divert her mind. She's brooding about something. She's been like that for the last two days. I think she's beginning to suspect. She can't understand why we never seem to meet anyone I know at these joints. A few nights ago I happened to run into two newspaper men I used to know fairly well. That kept me going for a while. I introduced them to Aunt Isabel as David Belasco and Jim Corbett, and it went well. But the effect is worn off now, and I think she's beginning to wonder again. Something's got to be done or she will find out everything, and if she does, I take a nickel for my chance of getting a cent from her later on. So, for the love of Mike, come across to our table and help things along. Oh, all right. Must rally around a pal in distress. Let's onward. Oh, thank you, Bertie. Aunt Isabel, a friend of mine would like to join us. You've met Bertie Wooster, Aunt Isabel? I have. Take a seat, Bertie. What do you have? And so the merry party began. It was one of those jolly, happy, bread-crumbling parties where you cough twice before you speak, and then decide not to say it after all. After we had had an hour of this wild dissipation, Aunt Isabel said she wanted to go home. 
In the light of what Rocky had been telling me, this struck me as sinister. I had gathered that at the beginning of her visit, she had had to be dragged home with ropes. It must have hit Rocky the same way, for he gave me a pleading look. You'll come along, won't you, Bertie? And have a drink at the flat? Oh, uh, certainly. Why not? Lovely. I shall call for a taxi. Right from the start, from the moment we stepped into the taxi, the feeling began to grow that something was about to break loose. A massive silence prevailed in the corner where the ant sat, and though Rocky, balancing himself on the little seat in front, did his best to supply dialogue, we weren't a chatty party. I had a glimpse of Jeeves as we went into the flat, sitting in his lair, and I wish I could have called to him to rally round. Something told me that I was about to need him. Here we are. Jeeves has stoked a fire for us in the sitting room. Aunt Isabel, might you wish to visit for longer? If I must. All right, then. Would Brandy suit you? Of course. Say when, Bertie. Stop! Ah, oh, heavens. I must get Jeeves to clean up this mess. Leave it there, Rockmateller. The time has come to speak. I cannot stand idly by and see a young man going to perdition. Eh? The fault was mine. I had not then seen the light, but now my eyes are open. I see the hideous mistake that I have made. I shudder at the thought of the wrong I did you, Rockmateller, by urging you to contact with this this wicked city. But when I wrote you that letter, Rockmateller, instructing you to go to the city and live its life, I had not yet had the privilege of hearing Mr. Mundy speak on the subject of the big city. Jimmy Mundy? Yes, Jimmy Mundy. I am surprised at a man of your stamp having heard of him. There is no music. There are no drunken, dancing men, no shameless, flaunting women at his meetings. So for you, they would have no attraction. But for others, less dead in sin. He has his message. He has come to picturesque phrase to hit the trail. It was three days ago, Rockmateller, that I first heard him. It was an accident that took me to his meeting. How often in this life a mere accident may play out a whole future? Whatever do you mean? You had been called away by that telephone message from Mr. Blasco, so you could not take me to the Hippodrome, as we had arranged. I had asked your manservant, Jeeves, to take me there. The man has very little intelligence. He seems to have misunderstood me. I am thankful that he did. He took me to what I subsequently learned was the Madison Auditorium, where Mr. Mundy is holding his meetings. He escorted me to a seat and then left me. And it was not till the meeting had begun that I had discovered the mistake which had been made. My seat was in the middle of a row. I could not leave without inconveniencing a great many people, so I remained. Rockmateller, I had never been so thankful for anything else. Mr. Mundy was wonderful. He was like some prophet of old, scourging the sins of the people. He leaped about in a frenzy of inspiration till I feared he would do himself an injury. Sometimes he expressed himself in a somewhat odd manner, but... Every word carried conviction. He showed me the city in its true colors. He showed me the vanity and wickedness of sitting in gilded haunts of vice, eating lobster when decent people should be in bed. Good heavens! He said that the tango and the foxtrot were devices of the devil to drag people down into the bottomless pit. He said that there was more sin in ten minutes with a banjo orchestra than in all in the ancient revels of Nineveh and Babylon. And when he stood on one leg and pointed right at where I was sitting and shouted, This means you. I could have sunk him through the floor. I came away a changed woman. Surely you must have noticed the change in me, Rockmateller. You must have seen that I was no longer the careless, thoughtless person who had urged you to dance in those places of, of wickedness. Y- yes, I, I thought something was wrong. Wrong? Something was right. Everything was right. Rockmateller, it is not too late for you to be saved. I have only sipped of the evil cup. You have not drained it. It will be hard at first, but you will find that you can do it if you fight with a stout heart against the glamour and fascination of this dreadful city. Won't you? For my sake, try, Rockmateller. Won't you go back into the country tomorrow and begin the struggle? Little by little... If you use your will... Do you want me to go back to the country, Aunt Isabel? Why, yes. Not to live in the city? Yes, Rockmateller. Stay in the country all the time, do you mean? Never come back to the city? Yes, Rockmateller. I mean just that. It is the only way. Only there can you be safe from temptation. 
Will you do it, Rockmateller? Will you? For my sake? I will. Certainly. You've uh, shown me the light. My dear aunt, let us go this instant to the country. But what about this flat? Your clothes? I'm sure old Birdie can take care of my belongings, can't you, chap? Uh, certainly, as long as Jeeves can stay with me. Of course. Well, we must be off. Come, Aunt Isabel. Birdie, Jeeves, I bid you adieu. After seeing Rocky and his aunt off, I put my feet up on the old table. I was alone with Jeeves once again, and finally in my old flat. Oh, Jeeves, there's no place like home. Very true, sir. The jolly old roof tree and all that sort of thing. Precisely, sir. Jeeves? Sir? Do you know at one point in the business I really thought you were baffled? Indeed, sir. When did you get the idea of taking Miss Rock Metteller to the meeting? It was pure genius. Thank you, sir. It came to me a little suddenly, one morning when I was thinking of my aunt, sir. Your aunt? The handsome cab one? Yes, sir. I recollected that whenever we observed one of her attacks coming on, we used to send for the clergyman of the parish. We always found that if he talked to her a while of higher things, it diverted her mind from handsome cabs. It occurred to me that the same treatment might prove efficacious in the case of Miss Rockmatella. Ah, it's brain, pure brain! What do you do to get like that, Jeeves? I believe you must eat a lot of fish or something. Do you eat a lot of fish, Jeeves? No, sir. Oh, well, then it's just a gift, I take it. And if you aren't born that way, there's no use worrying. Precisely, sir. If I might make the suggestion, sir, I should not continue to wear your present tie. The green shade gives you a slightly bilious air. I should strongly advocate the blue with the red domino pattern instead, sir. All right, Jeeves. You're always in the know. Play on Words presents The Ant and the Sluggard, starring Paul Rizal, Diana Draker, Sam Maroney, Curtis Lockhart, and Max Collins. Directed and produced by Max Collins. Sound by Anne Kristen Blanken. turn our ears around, fruitful listeners. Dear, there's no one on the line today because we have arranged a special surprise. The man in the booth found an alarming list you made a while back. When they asked you about it, you told them a tragic story. Seems you're in some trouble with your rent being raised past what you can afford. Yes, the person in the booth, they never told me their name, came to us asking our advice. The boothie said, our own host needs some help. So, of course, we said yes. There's just no affordable housing anymore. So now you will be living with us. What? My son has a beautiful SUV and it's really big. He can help you move your stuff in. No. You can be in our motorcycle gang. No. Marjorie promised me at the beginning if I did this, she would join my motorcycle gang. No. I only promised that knowing you would forget about it a week later. Marjorie, are you trying to say I'm fickle? I am made of sterner stuff than that for the important things in life. What is more important at this very moment than joining a motorcycle gang? Stop dithering, Gerald. A promise is a promise. I've heard you say that to that awful son of yours a hundred times. You aren't going to be a hypocrite, are you? There's no escaping me this time. We have three members now. No, no, no. No, no. And I think Johnny next door is interested. And Laura gave me a firm yes. She's raring to go as soon as she gets her hip surgery. We're practically the Hell's Angels. No. Which brings me back to what I've been trying to ask you. Marjorie... This question is of the utmost importance. What should our motorcycle gang be called? Oh my god, there is no escape. How about a play on words? No. A play on words. No. Someone save me. 
Our usual host is indisposed at the moment, but you have been listening to Play On Words. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Play On Words, rate us, leave a comment, and review the program at www.cfuvpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Arcade Palette, Jordan Barron, Annie LePage, Tyler Swagar, Max Collins, and Aviva Lassard. Music in this episode is performed by Vic Horvath. This episode was created by CFUV's production team. If you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cfuv.ca to learn more. Play on Words is made possible with the generous support of our friends at the Community Radio Fund of Canada. What's that host's name again? This can't be happening. Come along! Uh, what's your name? Our retirement village bus should be here soon to pick us up. It's a great bus. There's no partition between us and the driver, so you can shoot elastic bands at the driver's head. Then when he gets mad, you can pretend to be senile and he can't do anything about it. Yeah, well. Leave the poor bus driver alone. I heard from Troy, who heard it from Melinda, who heard it from Katie, who heard it from Melissa, who heard it from Max, that he has high blood pressure. Come along, uh, who's it? No. Let go of the chair, no. that's it. No. Come on. No. One foot no. in front of the other. No. Let's go, honey. There's a cupboard that squeaks in your room. But don't worry, I know exactly how to fix it. After you're all settled, I'll bring my power tools over. And once a week, they give you a free quarter so you can call whoever you like. And if you're first in line for dessert after dinner, the pie is still slightly warm from the microwave. If you tip the nurse, they will actually wash your bedding instead of pretending to. For movie night, we've been going through every movie ever made. We're still in the silent era. Somebody please help me! 